basically what they're trying to do is take an economy, whether it's worldwide or domestic, and uh, take that, you know, that economy, which is likely failing or slowing down or in trouble and ease it back into uh, prosperity. that we have a 2.0 it means that there's a 1.0 somewhere so what did the 1.0 come from so what i understand it it started actually in japan the goal of using the term quantitative easing is to make it sound sophisticated financial health doc welcome to the financial literacy podcast for healthcare professionals where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo welcome to the show how is my financial health doc podcast and uh, today we're going to be talking about something that is really unusual, unusual in the sense that this is usually a conversation between very smart economists. And uh, here today, first of all, I'm not smart, nor am I an economist. And we have uh, my good friend, Terry Pitts, who is a financial advisor and planner, who is also a portfolio manager independent on his own. So he gets to say what he wants to say and doesn't have to live the consequences of it. Is that right, Terry? Uh, that, well, uh, I think the, to first an extent. Part of, the second part is debatable, but <laughs> <laughs> to an extent, yes, I, I would say I'm a financial advisor. So you still have to live by some comp- compliance, I guess. Oh yeah, definitely compliance. Okay. So there's two guys, Terry and myself, uh, both of which were, are, are not economists. Are you an economist in a closet economist? No, I studied economics. That's my undergrad. Really the, the way I approach my business is with a macroeconomic uh, scope. And so I like to look at the big picture and then micro that down to how it affects clients. Okay, perfect. So at least you have some understanding of the uh, macro and maybe microeconomics. I only have understanding of medicine. So here we go. We're going to be talking. What are we talking about today, Terry? We're talking about a very fancy word called quantitative easing. And so we're going to talk about that describe it again a 3000 foot view type of thing because again this is not useful to the audience when we go to the nitty-gritty and molecular what i want to try to achieve at the end of this topic and this podcast is you know what does it mean to paul what does it mean to terry what does it mean to vu and what does it mean to you know anna the regular joe uh and so at the end of the day we'll try to achieve that and say okay i understand quantitative easing as it pertains to my regular life. Let's try to achieve that, Terry, today. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so let's just start off with the word quantitative easing, because it sounds very intelligent. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I think we're going to understanding at the end, but I'm going to give you the answer at the beginning so that we kind of have a framework to work on. And, and then understand, as we go through the podcast, we'll understand why it's called quantitative easing. It's a very, very sophisticated word to mean 
trying to help with quantity. Does that make sense? So I'm going to try to ease, which is the helping part, and quantitative, I'll just say quantity. Let's just understand it like that for now. Do you agree, Terry? Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. Uh, I, I think the, the goal of using the term quantitative easing is to make it sound sophisticated. And because, in my opinion, it, it is sophisticated. So I, I think if you're going to go down this road, uh, you know, the Federal Reserves around the world are doing, you, you might want to be able to have a name for it that's, that sounds pretty cool or awesome or whatever way you look at it, right? So, uh, but I like the way you've related it to quantity, but I, I, I think the, the way I look at quantitative is that it's, uh, there's some degree of uh, sophistication in there, what they're trying to achieve. And then the final part, easing, is uh, basically what they're trying to do is uh, take an economy, whether it's worldwide or uh, domestic, and take that, you know, that economy, which is likely failing or slowing down or in trouble, and ease it back into uh, prosperity. So that's, that's my opinion of what quantitative easing stands for. It has become a brand. It has become a, a word that people are throwing around for a regular Joe like myself or like most of my colleagues in, in healthcare were like, oh, what is this? How, what is this sophisticated word? It's like I said, and like you said, it's easing, easing the economy into something stronger growth. And quantitative, again, I just want people to keep in mind, keep the word quantity and you'll understand why. So now that we sort of drilled down a little bit into why this is called this way, we're going to explain it and we'll go through it. And at the end, you'll see why this is happening. Because Terry, like you said, this is very sophisticated. Like I'm, I'm not an economist, but it takes economists to figure this one out. So definitely very sophisticated thing that the government is doing. Let's give a backdrop of why this is happening. This is not the first time QE, we'll say QE instead mm-hmm. of quantitative easing. And by the, by the way, uh, we are in QE2, so 2.0. And so the fact that we have a 2.0, it means that there's a 1.0 somewhere. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, the history of QE. The U.S. is actually, they're in QE4. <laughs> QE4, okay. They're in QE4, yeah. You know, the, the, the term quantitative easing was first, uh, they say, coined around the um, early 2000s. Bank of Japan, not quite sure, initiated this around 1999, 2000, 2001. And the idea was to uh, use QE to fight domestic deflation. They, they've been doing this for the while. Uh, I guess they were the pioneers, so to speak. <clears throat> the, the, when we started hearing or paying attention to QE was during the 2008-2009 market crash, I guess you'd call it, uh, and financial crisis and therefore recession all in one. And uh, that's when the U.S. decided shortly after um, and I don't re- recall exactly, but it was after March 2009 that the, um, the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, started QE1 for the U.S. What you're saying is, okay, in Japan, 1999, 2000, yeah. Japan was going through a rough financial patch. 
their economy was slowing down and in fact was going into the negative. The, the Japanese government had to do something to stimulate the economy. And so what they did is they tried with interest rates to try to drop it down so that there's more money flowing in the economy, but that did not seem to work. So what they did is they used this QE policy method to try to stimulate the economy. And so the, the goal of QE is really to try to kickstart the economy. We'll talk about how that is being done later, but just to keep in mind that that is the goal. We're trying to kickstart an economy. It's a monetary policy whereby a central bank purchases at scale government bonds or other financial assets in order to inject money into the economy to expand economic activity. As you mentioned in 2008, when we went through that financial recession, which was quite deep uh, across the world, every single government had to figure out how to kickstart the economy. Again, they use fiscal policy and monetary policy, and they use interest rate. They drop the interest rate, uh, yeah. but, they, but they realized that even though they dropped the interest rate and banks were, you know what, they're dropping their own interest rate. And, and they were hoping that by dropping the interest rate, that the bank would start lending and people would start borrowing and let's go, let's get the economy going and we get money flowing into the system. But that didn't really happen, did it, uh, Terry? People were, people were not confident. So they kept the money they saved or they invested, but it did not flow into the, into the economy. Well, 2008, 2009 was like this perfect storm because you not only had a, a recession, which is what the Federal Reserve were trying to do. What you, you mentioned falling interest rates, but before those interest rates, short-term rates were falling, what was happening is that the reserve banks, uh, primarily in the U.S. and in Europe, are trying to slow an economy down because the economy is on fire. So if you remember leading into 2007 and eight, the economy was on fire, right? Since 2001, we had the, um, the uh, dot-com bubble burst. We went, through that, uh, we went through that normal business cycle where the economy regrouped. Companies, you know, companies went out of business, uh, but some of the companies that survived were stronger. That's, that's the normal business cycle. And then the economy picked up again through the early 2000s until about 2007 and into 2008, where things got a little out of hand. And that's where the, you know, the whole uh, housing crisis came into effect and they were using all kinds of sophisticated uh, financial instruments uh, and peddling those out to the world. You know, the economy was on fire and what they're trying to do to slow it down and bring it to a gentle ease is to raise interest rates. This is how you try to slow an economy down is by ever so gently <laughs> raising interest rates. Uh, the problem was, is that we had a financial crisis brewing. By the time uh, we got into the third quarter of 2008, some major institute, financial institutions uh, on Wall Street were just like, they just, they were gone overnight. And that reverberated around the world. The markets went down. They literally crashed from there. By then, the, uh, the, the Federal Reserve has already started to print. Uh, they had already gone into QE. 
So that's the first part of it. So the economy was on fire. They used interest rates to try to slow it down. There was a financial crisis, 2008, 2009. From there, we, uh, we saw a lot of bad things happen. But that was around the dawn of QE1. From there, government tried to stimulate the economy. That's the point. By reducing interest rates, it wasn't doing enough. There was too much, there was too much of a disaster in place. We were in really bad times. It was almost the apocalypse, what you're saying. By, by decreasing the interest rate, governments did not see so much of a kickstart in the economy. Because what had happened is after living through a crisis or during the crisis, a lot of people were scared. So banks were scared. The consumer was scared. And so even though we had low interest rate, people were not lending People were not borrowing and people were not dumping money into the market. People were living in their cars. <laughs> yeah, like they, so, they, were, they walked out of their houses because the houses were worthless. So yeah. they, they didn't matter if you had zero interest rates because if you're living in your car, are you really going to go out and get a loan to start a business or, or to buy a house? That's yeah, right. The houses were worthless. So people were jobless and people were scared. So whatever money they had, they hoarded and kept it at home or in a savings account. So that was under the mattress. issue. Or under a mattress. Because money was not circulating, the government had to find another way. So another, a different monetary policy. And that's when QE started, I guess what you're saying, in the U.S. In Japan, started much earlier than that. But in the U.S., that was QE1, 1.0. And that was a different mechanism to kickstart the economy. So bottom line, all this discussion is to say that the federal banks and the central banks of Canada and the different banks of different countries really have two mechanisms that to have to try to kickstart the economy. One is to bring down the interest rate or two, allow the flow of money into the system. And so to allow that flow of money, they needed to increase the quantity of money into the system. Now, as you can understand, with every single uh, pathway or strategy, there are positive and there are negative, and there are unintended consequences, so unintended consequences. As you were saying, it, was, it wasn't just the Americans, it was the Eurozone, UK. And I believe that at that time, Canada was not part of QE1. Canada did not adopt quantitative easing at that time. Or did they, Terry? That, I do believe, no. No, we avoided QE and we avoided the financial crisis. And our, our real estate market didn't crash. It's gone up ever since. That's why we're talking about this, because it has implications for the regular Joe and regular Jane. And I remember when uh, the Canadian dollar was at par with the American dollar. I remember back then, you know, we went, we went to Buffalo and we went to Detroit and went to the outlet and it was like free for all. You come back with a $25, you know, Levi's jeans. When the Canadian Levi's jeans cost you 75 you were able to buy with $25 Levi's jeans in the U.S., at par. Uh, do you remember that? I don't know. You don't wear jeans. Uh, uh, <laughs> I do wear jeans. I love jeans. You love jeans. <laughs> but, so, uh, I, but the, uh, no, I, I do remember that. And there was a, actually, there was a lot of cross-border shopping. And I think that's when, you know, the Canadian government instituted a lot of their 
cross-border shopping rules that we live by today. So, okay, so now that we understand the history behind quantitative easing, I was watching a YouTube video uh, that was explaining, you know, how the economy works a little bit and what the GDP was about. Sure. So the way they explained it is that the GDP, the gross domestic product, is a sort of a, um, a parameter of how the economy is within a country. And what this person was saying is that the GDP is, uh, is dependent on two factors. One, the supply of money or and the velocity of spending. So GDP equals money supply multiplied by the velocity of spending. So how much money is in the system and how fast is the spending flowing in the system? When velocity drops, we need to inject money. Or when the money drops, we need to increase the velocity to keep the same GDP amount. And to increase GDP, to have a GDP growth, we need to have a growth in supply and a growth in velocity of spending. What we have been seeing in 2008 and uh, after COVID, as you can understand, the economy kind of came to a stall right? Because people weren't spending, there was a lockdown, whole bunch of things, a, a bunch of restaurants, hotels, airlines, a, a, a whole lot of industry just went to a stall and the economy went to a stall. And so we're seeing something similar to what happened in 2008, where 2008 was a deflation, a crash in the economy. Now we're seeing a slowdown and also a crash in the economy, but for different reasons. The way that this YouTuber was explaining it is that we have a stagnation, we have a blockage of flow of money. So equate this to a constipation in the financial <laughs> in the financial world, right? We have a really big constipation and we need to get this moving. This moving is we need to bring in some laxative you can now understand the analogy. So the economy stagnated, it's constipated. We now need to bring some sort of laxative. You can either bring colase or ducosate sodium. You can bring in senna or you can bring in lactulose, right? So there are different ways to bring it in and quantitative easing is one of those laxative for the economy. What do you think of that analogy, Terry? I love it. Love it. Okay. <laughs> it's great. So the central bank of a country is really the family doctor. The family doctor is the quarterback of the economy here. Right. Good right. analogy. Yeah. And so sometimes uh, the sometimes the family doctor needs to give some lactulose or senecot, and sometimes the family doctor needs to give some loperamide, which is for anti-diarrhea. Right. So depending on where the um, where the GI system is, and I, I equate the uh, financial economy as the GI system because sometimes we have to unblock and sometimes we have to slow it down. So what you're saying is uh, it's really what family doctors do every day. Yeah, there, there you go. Exactly. There you go. Okay. So all the family doctors out there, you now understand the economy just right there alone. <laughs> Okay, so now let's go to the definition because you had a really nice definition and I would like you to repeat that because we're going to go into the definition and we're going to, and we're going to discuss how the central banks are doing it. What I said earlier is this is a nice summary of what quantitative easing is. 
And it is a monetary policy whereby a central bank purchases at scale government bonds or other financial assets in order to inject money into their economy to expand economic activity. There's a few words in there that uh, I want to break down a little bit. Drill down, okay. Yeah. So let's just say monetary policy. How is monetary policy different from fiscal policy? And what does it monetary policy mean? It's, it's a, a very, you know, big jargon here. So again, put, put it into layman terms. Well, let's, let's put it simply. F- fiscal policy would be uh, where governments are trying to manage things like their, their budget, right? So they're trying to control spending. They want to be pulling in more money through taxation or other means, Monetary policy is uh, is the other is what we talked about um, before, using interest rates and mon- uh, policies like quantitative easing to control the economy. So fiscal, you're running surpluses and deficits. Monetary is controlling interest rates and using now QE to uh, to expand economic activity. And so you're all you're always trying to manage that business cycle. Now that we know the difference between fiscal and monetary policy, in that definition, you talked about you know purchasing assets and purchasing bonds. So what type of bond is governments buying? Ideally, they're out there buying sovereign bonds. So those would be the bonds of um, uh, usually their own. So in Canada, we would buy Canada bonds. The U.S. would buy U.S. Treasuries. They, they might expand that, and they also might also buy corporate uh, debt as well, uh, high-grade high, uh, high corporate debt. Okay, so where do they buy it from? So they're using a monetary policy to try to drive the economy. They're trying to dump some money into the economy by buying back bonds. And they're buying back from the market, right, so that they can jump, they can put money back into the market. So who are they buying it from, typically? Well, they're buying it. Usually it's, uh, it's who's ever holding the bonds. And the, the biggest holders of the bonds are usually, uh, you know, pension funds, uh, insurance companies. Insurance companies hold a lot of sovereign bonds. And, and so whatever bonds are out, and, and then individual investors. I, if I understand, they're buying, back, they're buying back these bonds that are in the market. They're buying it back because they're, it's their own bonds, right? They're buying it back from large financial institutions. You were talking about insurance companies, you were talking about pension funds, you're talking about banks. The little consumer retailer like you and I, they don't care about. They care about moving money with the big institutions. So they're buying back money, sorry, they're buying back bonds from these big institutions to move money around. Okay, so I understand. There's one other point there. How are they, what are they using to buy those bonds? Exactly, I was coming to that. So that was my question. So. They're they're buying back all these things, and the next question is where where do where do these government find the money? So the the central bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve, the central bank of UK and Eurozone, where do they find the money? So typically, you would say they would print money, but now they're not printing anymore because we don't use papers and trees are dying, and so we're digitally printing money. So what do they do, Terry? That's 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 exactly what they do. They 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 create credit, which uh, right out of thin air. Uh, they don't print money, and they're not really printing money. They're printing. They're really just making digital money 
thereby expanding the money supply. And that money supply is used to purchase the financial assets that are already out there on the market. And by putting that money into the, putting that digital currency into the, injecting it into the economy is ideally supposed to help stimulate the economy. Since interest rates are at all-time lows, you know, the, the Federal Reserve were at 0.25% and maybe going down to zero. In Europe, where they're minus uh, percentage, you actually have to pay the bank to keep your money in the bank. Uh, they're not paying you anything. So when, when you no longer can play with the interest rate, the only thing you can play with now is the volume of money in the market or in the system. So what, what the central banks are doing is they're instead of printing, they go to a computer, use a mouse and add a few more zeros to their balance sheet and digitally create money out of thin air. And so that money doesn't exist anywhere. It just came from nowhere. It's not, it's not backed by gold because we removed the gold standard in 1970 by Richard Nixon. So there's, it's no longer backed by anything. So you can now just create zeros behind your, your, your credit because you're the central bank, you can do it. So we've now used a system called quantitative easing to create digital money, which now this money is on a balance sheet. And we're using that money that I would call it money that didn't exist before to buy back these bonds. And that money is now in the hands of institutions, banks, so that banks can lend VU and lend Terry money and hopefully VU and Terry will go out and spend it on a giant TV or on a car or buy a Louis, Louis Vuitton bag so that that money circulates in the system. That's, so that's why we're doing it. In terms of money flowing out there and using these monetary policies, it's not unusual. So using these policies are not unusual. But there's something unusual about how we're doing it in QE 1, 2, 3, and 4.0. Terry, in your mind, and I know, I know why it's unusual. So in your mind, what's so unusual about what we're doing now? Yeah, so what, what's most unusual is that um, the concept now, the way they're talking about it now, we don't know when this is going to end. And that's not the idea of using a monetary policy is to, <laughs> you know, just create create and print money forever. We don't tend to get the idea that they have any plans to stop this. And that is, uh, that's doing a lot to stimulate, uh, keep the economy stimulated. It may not be going as hard as it could be if everybody was working, but uh, in this case, what, what else can you do, right? People are at home, banks are doing what they gotta do. They're, they're injecting money into the system, albeit out of thin air but it's going direct to the consumer. The problem is how long can this go on? And so what's unusual about the QEs that we are currently living is one, there is, there is no stop in mind. We don't know when to stop yet. Whereas the other QEs in the past, they sort of had a deadline. They sort of had a, a certain time frame in which they're doing it. Right now, the one thing that is going on is because of COVID, it has now enhanced this. And we actually, we, when I say we, I mean central banks don't know yet when to stop this. The other unconventional 
thing about the current QEs is the fact that the scale is unprecedented. We're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars, which the Fed Federal Reserve have never done this before in the trillions. So that's the second thing that's so unusual about it. Imagine that you're creating trillions of dollars out of nothing. And three, you mentioned about the fact that, you know, these reserves and these central banks are buying typically bonds to, to inject money back into the market. But you've alluded to the fact that they are now, uh, some, some central banks are buying back uh, corporate bonds, buying back equities, and they're also buying back mortgage-backed securities, which uh, is typically not done. So the fact that doing doing this and not just buying bonds is what's unconventional about the current QEs. And the reason I say this, because it does come with some risk. So imagine central banks are buying equities that can go up and down within the next five minutes. You can imagine how unsteady and unstable that is. But also mortgage-backed securities are based on housing and housing health and the housing industry. So if we see another crash of 2008 like there was in, uh, in the U.S. or we see the housing industry slow down, you can imagine now that the central banks now own all these mortgage-backed securities that may decrease significantly in value. And so there's a lot of risk associated with that. Isn't that right, Terry? You're right. They're bringing on riskier assets. Uh, these obviously, if these assets are good assets, they're on the balance sheet of the, you know, of the, the governments, right? So as long as they continue to produce a return on investment, so to speak, that's a good thing. But you mentioned mortgage-backed securities. Some of these are less, um, can be less solid. That's it, <laughs> solvent. Uh, and um, so riskier, let's just put it that way. So you could have some problems there. Uh, obviously, a government would be able to, a government could withstand you know, the loss of some of these mortgage-backed securities or whatever, even the corporate bonds. But the, 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 big, the main question is how long are they gonna do this? So what you're saying is all these central banks are playing with a house of cards. You know, QA, you may not have an interest in QE, but QE has an interest in you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're doing this podcast, because we're doing this podcast so that we can drill it down to the individual, so that the individual knows what, what QE and how it impacts their lives going forward, because it's important to understand this. Every time we do this, so the idea of doing QE is to kickstart the economy, but there are some paradoxical uh, side effects from this. So it may not do what it's intended to do. Like I said earlier, you can inject money into the system, but if people are not confident, they're going to hoard the money and put it under the mattress and will not spending. And if so, if that happens, it will not people, the government's tactic or strategy would not do what it intended to do. Now, I also read that it could also raise inflation. Don't forget, QE is designed to create inflation. You want because you want to get you want to stimulate an economy. Well, you want to create you want to create an economy and stimulate an economy to bring back the inflation at two percent or about. Yeah, exactly. You don't want it to go to three, four, five, six percent. 
And so the paradoxical is that it may actually jump to three, four, five percent if they're not careful with it, because the dollar, the dollar of the the value of the dollar has decreased so much. QE is designed to create inflation, and that's what you're doing by adding the zeros, like you said, is that you're you're trying to stimulate an economy where no other, where the normal intervention, monetary policy, is not working, i.e., interest rate management. So now let's talk about the impact and what does it really mean for me and you and for regular Joe and Jane. I remember having this conversation with you and saying the stock market is going up and up and up and up and up while people are losing their jobs and there's a lockdown and there's apparently a virus going around that's killing people. But yet the market is still going up when I was expecting it to go down. And you said, wow, quantitative easing. You remember Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I, I think that's why yeah. we're doing this. <laughs> let's, let's just chat about that because we'll drill, we'll drill about the impact. So let's talk about the impact. We've talked all about you know, what it is and what it does and what it does in the winter and the summer and all that. But at the end of the day, what is its impact? Because the impact could be intentional or it could be unintentional. And there could be side effects. Now, every time I give you Senecot, I have there are side effects, right? So I'm trying to unconstipate a, a financial system here. And there are some intended consequences and there are some unintended consequences. And there are some side effects. Seeing the market going as it is right now, is this a consequence of the QE or is this is unintended consequences of QE? We see the market just going up and up and it's crazy. Yeah, well, no, the 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 market, the, the markets usually, so there's there's an old adage, it's don't fight the Fed. When you're dealing with equity markets, do not fight the Fed. The idea of the, uh, <clears throat> the one of the best, I don't know what's one of the best, uh, but it's a good one to, uh, if you have extra money and you don't want to put it in the bank and have the bank charge you for holding your money there like the Europeans or some Europeans or in Canada where they're going to give you a quarter I'm not even sure if it's a quarter percent uh, and you want to have your money stay away stay ahead of the rate of inflation uh, the equity markets are a good place right you don't want to fight the Fed so you you uh, so the equity markets normally go up when the Fed is printing money or creating increased monetary supply why stimulating the economy so why would the why would the markets pull back in that in that light we have qe we have qe worldwide we have uh countries printing doing qe like canada that have never done it before the money is going direct to consumer the consumers whether they're spending it or not they will be spending it the, the markets would continue to go up against all the I would say, like you were saying, common sense, where you would think, you know, with a with a financial, uh, sorry, with a health crisis that is keeping people locked up in their houses. I don't know. Probably in the '80s, that would have been bad. But now that you can get on your computer, like we are right here, and you can order a new fridge and it'll come to your door in two days, uh, or new TVs, or so on. Uh, we're, we've adapted, right? And the economy is adapting. Companies are reporting profits. This means the markets should go up. In, in, in essence, a little bit is a positive impact 
from QE. It's an uh, adaptation. It's an adaptation, but I think it's probably what the feds wanted to happen. They wanted to keep the market healthy, right? So, so I think that's a positive impact of QE. What else, what impact has quantitative easing done to our everyday life? What are some examples that you've seen, Terry? Well, I, I would think the, uh, the main thing is going to be inflation. Uh, look at the cost of, look at milk. I don't know. Do you drink a lot of milk, Boo? No, remember, I'm Asian. I do. I love milk. I shouldn't be. I don't know why. I, but apparently, I, you know, I would be, uh, but I love milk. The question is, are you drinking 1% or 2% or even 3.25%? No, I, I, I go with the skim. One okay. to two, it doesn't matter. But at least, they, at least, uh, at least yeah. you know you're, you have to be healthy with that. That's right. But it's, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's up to about um, somewhere around five bucks for three bags. And, yeah. you know, a year ago, that was uh, about three dollars. So yeah. you're going to you're going to start noticing these. Oh, gas. I don't think gas has not just gone up because of Biden, you know, starting to shut down some of the oil fields and gas fields in the United States. But I still think there's inflation there. And, you know, yeah. so a year ago we were at 80, 85 cents, 90 cents, 90 cents. We stayed around for a long time. Recently, $1.25. So you're going to start seeing more of this. So what I understand from quantitative easing is that the money into the market has driven people to buy more of commodities. So the commodities market have increased. Um, I would say in, in excess of it, what usually is. So from, from what I hear from a lot of people, and I don't truly understand the reason for it, but the impact has been that people have been investing in uh, futures, commodity futures. And that's what has uh, risen the, the prices for commodities. And that's probably why you're seeing increase in price in wood, in uh, food staples, uh, in gas and stuff like that. So I don't truly understand that, uh, how that works on the, on the back end, but that has been, as you mentioned, uh, the the impact of that well and normally with when you again when you see inflation one of the night nice things you want want to see with inflation is wage increases but if nobody's working and companies aren't hiring <laughs> you're starting to see now there's a gap right so if wages are not going up well commodities and or you know other the prices of whatever if it's tvs if it's phones if you know, you start to see that winding gap between wages and consumer goods. That's not a good thing. So we'll have to see what happens. So what you're saying, what you're saying is actually very important because you're saying the prices of commodities are going up. And as a consumer, as a regular Joe, regular Vu, regular Terry, that's possibly a consequence of QE. But what you're also saying is, the regular, the regular Terry, the regular Vu is losing their job because we're in a lockdown. There is no increase in salary. So we're potentially seeing this gap being bigger and bigger. And what you're saying is we are potentially heading towards a huge bubble that's going to burst. And when it bursts, it's going to be so bad uh, that it probably will be more severe than the 2008. I mean, that's a possibility. 
Well, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that this is because of QE. That's not, that's, I'm not relating it to QE. I'm not saying this is what's causing it. Yeah, the, 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 the gap between wages, uh, wage inflation and consumer good inflation is not the result of QE. By, by implementing QE, we see some increase in commodities, in prices in commodities. And what we're seeing is a devaluing of the dollar. What we're seeing is maybe an increase in inflation. Your point was, as we're seeing the increase in inflation, we're not seeing an increase in salary. In fact, a lot, of pe- a lot of people are losing their jobs because of the lockdown. Or out and of work. And out of work. And so therefore, what we are potentially seeing is we're riding a train towards a big, huge wall. And when that collides, there's going to be a lot of damage. With that, well, like I said, the ships have left Spain and where they end up, we don't know yet. Okay, so what other daily impacts does do you think QE could be related to? What about people who are invested? How does that impact uh, the regular retail investor? Well, I, ideally, QE, uh, and if you can, you can backtest this as well, QE will normally help the equity markets. If we will see equity markets respond positively to QE, to government QE. And primarily that has been the injection, the printing of money out of thin air to inject uh, stimulation into the economy. So what you're saying is the equity market is as strong and as quote unquote healthy as it is because we are injecting money that came from nowhere. Think about the use of cocaine. Right. So exuberant. Cocaine can actually be very positive for a while. Yeah. So, <laughs> and more than one night, right? I mean, you can go on for a long time using yeah, cocaine. Yeah. So, we are on a high. We are on a high because of cocaine. Yeah. And cocaine here is the QE. So, we are on a high because of, of QE. But you know what happens to people who come off cocaine, right? People can understand that when you come off cocaine, you get a huge crash. Yes. Well, that's right. That's right. Where so, we're- so we're we're constantly using cocaine and sniffing up our nose right now uh, to prop up the economy and prop up the equity market, and it's doing very well. Some people call this extreme exuberance, which I agree with. And so, once we come off this QE, whenever that is, we don't know when that is, and will we ever be able to come off QE? The same way, we, will we ever be able to come off this cocaine? I don't know. You don't know. Central banks actually don't even know. And so when that time comes, we're dealing with a huge uh, house of paper cards that's going to fall really bad. So the question is, if the central banks don't want that to happen, they have to use continue using cocaine. And again, you know what happens when people continue using cocaine, right? Well, I, and I remember actually sitting in on a uh, cardiology rounds about, oh, a long time ago now, about 15 years ago at uh, Rouge Valley. And uh, there was a, uh, I forget what the topic was, but the cardiologist that was presenting did bring up the effects of long-term cocaine use on heart valves and that it actually weakened the outer lining of heart valves and eventually led, which would eventually lead to blood clotting which would le- eventually would lead to a PE or a stroke, uh, which is eventually would lead to death. I think it's a perfect analogy. So 
The economy is now riding on cocaine, as you said earlier. We are on the biggest high ever,、uh, at least from a from a monetary perspective. Monetary cocaine. So the 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 issue that you and I don't know is that when will the Feds ever stop this, or can they ever stop this? Because the moment they stop this, we're going to have a humongous crash. And if we decide to use this moderately over time, at the end of the day, it still has very bad side effects from it. And so we have、uh, stepped on a journey.、Uh, we, meaning the entire world, including Canada, with QE, we have stepped on this journey without really knowing the unintended consequences and where we're headed.、And、I think fact- a,、uh, just to finally just to wrap that up a little. Sorry to butt in. But I think, like we talked about these、um, these、uh, governments and the, the 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 people that work in these、uh, reserve banks, are like the family physicians for you know government finance. And、uh, I think speak doing the cocaine analogy, a good family doc. If a if a person that was using cocaine moderately and doing well, but knew that somewhere down the road, long term, this was bad for them. They would come to a good family doctor, and that family doctor would be able to help them、uh, go off their drug of choice and onto a healthier lifestyle. And you could probably recover. Hopefully, those people working in the reserve banks and the governments、uh, will be under the care of a good family doctor. I hope so too. I hope so too.、Uh, I I have a lot of optimism for family doctors. I don't have a lot of optimism for central banks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, you were saying something that I think was very important. You may not care, and I may not care about QE, but QE definitely cares about you. Yeah.、And、that's why it's important that we understand this because it does affect your everyday life, and it does affect how you're going to invest going forward, whether you believe the crash is coming or not, and even if you don't believe the crash is coming. Uh, do you want to ride the high, and how long are you going to ride the high for? I think I think it's it's、uh, that that's that's what's up for debate,、uh, and it's the debate is the debate is going on. Trust me, it is it is、uh, it is being held, and we'll we just we're going to have to see where it goes because we're 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 out to sea now, so we have to see where this heads. We need land. We need land. We need. We're, land. We're, let's put it this way: we're in the deep waters, and we need to start looking out for seagulls, because、uh, seagulls always tend to, you know, stick close to, to land. Okay, so Terry, it's been it's been great. It's been amazing. It's been educational. It's been fun. Yes. We had, we had good times. We had bad times. We, we laughed. laughed. We, we cried. Perfect. <laughs> And so,、uh, thank you very much for coming on to the show, Terry. Yeah, this this was this was fun.、Uh, actually, a lot of fun, Boo. And、uh, I, I hope people will make、uh, you know some use and some good use about our discussion. I want to bring the audience back to quantitative easing. We're going to try to ease the economy back into health, hopefully, by injecting some quantity of money. That's what quantitative easing really means. A big, sophisticated word for a quote-unquote simple monetary policy that is, at the end of the day, not that simple. Exactly. If you want to reach out to me and leave me comments or questions or give me topic suggestions for future podcasts, 
please email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. And I am looking forward to hearing from you. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.